Uh, I came across a story this week about a teenager, a brilliant teenager named Thomas. Thomas had a, 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 a great potential in his future. Uh, he had always wanted to be a lawyer, and that was a goal he had set out for himself. Well, Thomas was uh, doing something one day, and uh, he had a terrible, terrible accident. And one of his eyes was greatly damaged. And so his parents took him to the doctor. Doctor referred him to a specialist. Specialist took a look at that eye, examined it thoroughly, and said, we have to take it out. Because of the nature of the injury, the, uh, keeping that eye in poses a threat to your other eye, your good eye. So we have to take it out. And so they schedule the surgery. He shows up, goes in for the surgery. He's waking up from the anesthetics and very quickly discovers there's a problem. <clears throat> Turns out the surgeon took the wrong eye. So young Thomas wakes up, teenager, anticipating being able to see, going to law school. Now he's completely blind. <clears throat> and contemplating what that means for his future. And he struggles quite a bit with the prospect of his future now. And they're having a family meeting one night about plans as he was getting ready for college, going off to college and then going to law school beyond and he has a brother, a brother named William. William was sitting there in the family meeting, and Thomas begins to, to weep about broken expectations. And William speaks up. William, the brother, William, who had had his own plans, his own estimations, his own excitements about the future, he says, well, I'll tell you this. He says, why don't I... Just, I'll go to college with Thomas. We'll room together. We'll eat together. And he said, well, then I will also go to law school with him. I'll help him study. I'll help him read his notes. All those books are going to have to read. I'll read it for him and help him figure it out and have it memorized. So when we go in to take those tests, he's got this down pat. And so they go to school together, Thomas and William. And they're rooming together. William's reading to Thomas every night. The, the truckload of stuff that they have to read just in college. And then when they get to law school, all of the information they have to ingest in, in law school and present and be ready for. And it comes graduation day of law school. Parents come and they're sitting out there getting ready for graduation of law school. Thomas, the one with so much potential, who went blind, graduated number one. His brother William graduated number two. All because of love. All because William valued family over his own plans. Valued his brother over his own plans. You see, value is proven, not simply stated. You can state you value something all day long, but if you don't prove it, it doesn't mean jack squat. And so the question comes, the title of today's message, how can you prove value? How do you prove it? So we're going to see in this scripture. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. 
If you want to use one of the Bibles on the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 846. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that one home. We have others we can replace that one with. We have them so that you can have one. Everyone needs one. So take that, Mark chapter 10, page 846, starting down in verse 17. Mark writes, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now look at what that, that opens with, as he was setting out on his journey. You see, we're starting a new series today leading up to Easter. It's called The Road to the Cross. It's going to be examining everything, not as much as we can, that Jesus did on his final road trip when he was on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. This is the first thing that we can find uh, in all of the Gospels, that Jesus makes a, a deliberate turn from where he was and starts on the road to Jerusalem to be crucified. And here he's setting out on his journey. He's, he's going out, and a man runs up to him right as he's setting out on this journey to go to Jerusalem. His whole purpose in coming, to die and raise from the dead. And this guy runs up to him and kneels before him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Basically, how do I get into heaven? How, how can I get into heaven? And Jesus knows a lot about this man knows a lot about him, knows uh, uh, everything there is to know, which we're going to see in Jesus' response to this man. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus is trying with this man to reframe his understanding of good. I mean, the man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Any first century Jew would know the answer to that question, at least as far as their synagogues taught him, because they would say, keep the law. You inherit eternal life by keeping the law. That's not what Jesus taught, but that's what their first century rabbis taught. You, you, you get into heaven by, keep, by being perfect. And so Jesus is trying to help this man understood what is good, what is getting you into heaven. And so when the man says, what must I do, good teacher, Jesus says, well, only God is good, first of all. Jesus doesn't say he's not God. He doesn't say himself, Jesus. He doesn't say that he's not good. He's just trying to help the man understand where he needs to keep his focus. And so Jesus starts listing out some of these commandments. These commandments, do not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't uh, be deceitful, defraud, honor your father and mother. He's list, he doesn't list all the commandments because there's a lot of them. There's not just 10. I mean, there's hundreds uh, in, in uh, the law. He just lists some here, trying to help the man get to the point of understanding. Because the man, think about it again, first century Jewish man asked, how do I get into heaven? And he hears this response, and so he's probably thinking, Whew, okay, I'm good. <laughs> I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery or stolen or lied. I, I'm honoring my father. He's, he's, he's probably thinking, okay, I then am good. I'm good enough to get into heaven. But Jesus, again, is trying to help the man understand what goodness really is. Because in actuality, as Paul tells us later on in Romans, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, of the absolute good uh, standard that is God. 
And so Jesus hasn't finished teaching yet. He has just listed out some of the commandments. Verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So you can almost hear the relief in his statement. I have kept all these. Okay, okay, okay. I was coming, Jesus. I just wanted to know. I probably, this man probably heard from other people that Jesus was teaching something else beyond just keeping the commandments to get into heaven. And, and so he comes to Jesus and he says, okay, I've kept all those. I, I'm good, right, Jesus? Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. So he told the man initially, what are all the commandments? The man said, I've kept all those. I'm good, I'm into heaven, right? And Jesus said, no, you need to give everything away you have. Now, this isn't a standard for everybody. Jesus isn't saying every Christian who's ever lived, the only way to get into heaven is sell all your stuff and then you're in heaven. That's not what he's saying. This is an issue with this man. He's addressing with this man. He tells him, go sell everything and give to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The man's treasure was in his money. The man's security was in his money. The man's faith was in his money. And Jesus is trying to help the man see the, the uh, thing that, he, that was pulling his devotion away from God, his devotion to his money. He's telling the man, anything that would pull your devotion away from the Lord, you've got to get rid of. Not even just keep a little bit. He says, get rid of all of it. Because even if you have a little bit, man, you're going to be devoted to that thing and not the Lord. He says, so get rid of it. And so this man hears this. How do you think he responds to that from Jesus? Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the man walks away from Jesus. He walks away. It's one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. He walked away from Jesus. He gave up Jesus rather than give up his money. He chose his great possessions rather than Jesus. Now, this man may at some point in the future have come back to belief. We don't know. Just at this point, as Jesus is setting out on his journey to go to Jerusalem, to be crucified, to raise from the dead, he meets this man, and this man walks away from Jesus because he would rather have his stuff he would rather be devoted to his stuff. He'd rather find his security and, and, and help in his possessions, in his money, than in Jesus. He was more devoted to what he had acquired. He was more devoted to what he had gathered up for himself and what it provided for him. Money provides, at least in our own estimation, money provides security. Money provides status. Money helps us not have to think about and worry about certain things in our lives. But so does Jesus. He provides for us. He removes anything that would cause us anxiety about the now or the future. And this man had put his faith in his money. And he had a problem. Jesus was pointing that out, not just to him, but to everybody who's listening. So this man looked to what his money provided rather than Jesus and what he provided. But like I said, this man, this teaching wasn't just for the man. 
Because this teaching that Jesus was trying to fly in the face of, you have to be good enough. You've, you've got to, uh, if you have money, that means you're being good enough because that means God's blessing you. That means God's giving you money. If you have a bunch of stuff, that means God is on your side. If you're rich, that means God is for you, not against you. Some people still teach that today. But Jesus is saying that's not the way. But everybody in the first century taught that. Not just Judaism. All the religions, that if you have money, that means your God is blessing you. And he's all about whatever you're doing, so keep doing it. Jesus is saying, no, that's not it at all. Money can be a tool. Money can be used by God. But money's not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. So look at what happens next. His disciples have been listening to all this. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now that would have flabbergasted everybody there. Jesus said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Because remember, the first century teaching was, if you're rich, you're more godly than everybody else. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to flip that on its head, and it's actually the opposite. If your faith is in your money... If your faith is in anything but God, you're going to have a hard time trying to follow the Lord. If your faith is in your smarts, if your faith is in your cleverness, if your faith is in your business savvy, if your faith is in how good your kids do at school, if your faith is in anything but God, then your faith isn't in Jesus. And so he's, he's t teaching this to his disciples because it's not just about the rich man who, who has been taught this his whole lives. Even Jesus' disciples have been taught this. And so he's having to get them to unlearn all the stuff they've been taught about this topic. And so he says this in verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words. They're thinking, wait, what? What? J Jesus? What do you, that doesn't make any sense, Jesus. I had this rabbi growing up. I loved him. He was, he was really smart, Jesus. He knew. He knew the Torah backwards and forwards. And he taught the opposite of what you're saying. What do you mean, Jesus? So they're amazed at what he's saying. That's not like amazed, like, wow, that's so good. That's like amazed. They can't believe it came out of his mouth, amazed. All right? Look at what comes next. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So he says the phrase again, but he, he removes the qualifier. Before he said, for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. Now he's saying, it's just difficult in general. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't earn your way into heaven. You can't be good enough to get into heaven. He says, it's difficult. Basically, it's impossible to do on your own. There's nothing you can have in this world that will get you there. There's only one way to get there. Verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Camel was the biggest animal they had in that area of the world. Eye of a needle is pretty tiny. Have you ever seen a needle? You ever had trouble sticking a string through the eye of a needle? Try sticking a camel through the eye of a needle. Some people say there's this gate in Jerusalem that they call the eye of the needle. Well, Actually, that teaching didn't show up until like three or four hundred years after this. And so that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a literal sewing needle. Getting a camel through a literal sewing needle. He says it can't happen. 
It's impossible. You can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. You know, Jesus, in another teaching in Mark chapter 4, he said that uh, uh, the, the deceitfulness of wealth can remove all fruitfulness of the faithful. Can, if, if you're faithful to the Lord, if you're a believer in God, we can all be deceived by wealth, pursuing money constantly. I got to have, I got to get, I need, I need, I need. And turning to that for our, our provision rather than the Lord. Allowing the Lord to provide in the ways that he always does. The problem, though, isn't the money itself. Money is not the problem. Like Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil, the pursuit of it, rather than the pursuit of God. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be provided for you. Not seek first the, the money in your bank account. Not seek first more and more and more. Seek first the kingdom of God, and he will provide. He is the provider, always. So money in and of itself is not the evil. It's the pursuit of it that can become an issue with our hearts. When we become more focused on the pursuit of money than the, the pursuit of the Lord, when we are more readily strategizing and planning how to get more money than we are planning and strategizing how to get more Jesus, then we got a problem within us that we've got to readjust our faith is in it. When we have more trust in what money provides than in what Jesus provides, that's a problem. Money's not the problem. It's, it's our trust in it. When we have a misplaced belief that money means approval, that money means blessedness, then we have a problem. Money's not the problem. It's our approach to it. Money can be a blessing. I'm not saying it's not. It can be. God can provide it in miraculous ways, and I've seen him do it. At the last second, I've seen him do it in advance of something coming. I've seen him do it when I thought it was impossible, and I'm the preacher. And I've seen him provide it in ways that I thought, yeah, it's never going to happen. And here he comes, doing what he does, always providing what we need. Money doesn't signify blessed status, which is what they thought. Jesus is saying, you've got to look to the Lord, and he will provide. Look to God to provide. Look to God to take care of you, and he always will. And so remember, he's teaching this to his disciples. He's trying to unlearn in them everything they had learned about this topic so far. And remember the verse a minute ago said they were amazed. Well, they don't stop at amazement. Look at verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Who can be saved then if it's not about that? Who can be saved if it's so difficult? Who can be saved if you're telling me that rich people aren't at the top of the list of people getting into heaven? Jesus so saying, you're missing the point, guys. It's not about the money. It's about believing. It's about trusting God. It's not about getting into heaven by any other means. He's saying it's impossible by any other means. There's only one way. And so Jesus, verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. He says, it is impossible, 
You're thinking it's impossible? It is. You cannot do it. You can't make enough money to get in. You can't be good enough to get in. It's in. He says, that's what I was trying to teach that guy. He can't do all the commandments to get into heaven. That's not how it works. All things are possible with God, not with you. You can't sneak in the back door of heaven. You only get there through belief, through trusting in Jesus. Verse 28. So Peter, of course, speaks up after this great teaching from the Lord. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Peter's, <laughs> everything Jesus just said, it's impossible to please God. If, you do, if you're not following God, it's impossible to get into heaven if it's not with God. Peter goes, skips all of that teaching and goes back to the rich man who Jesus said, you got to sell everything and leave it all behind and come follow me. And Peter says, okay, we sold everything and we're following you, Jesus. we got to be better than that guy. Like, we got to be ahead of him, right, Jesus? I mean, we gave it all up to come and follow you. My fishing business, my friends, my wife was mad at me, my in-laws were mad at me, and they were saying, how are you going to make money now, Peter? And I'm out here, Jesus, and we gave it all, all the ridicule, and we're out here with you. Peter wants some recognition. Y'all ever want any recognition? You want somebody to say, you're doing a good job. Sometimes we all need that a little bit. But sometimes we look to the wrong source of that recognition. Peter is doing the right thing. He's going to Jesus for the recognition. But his words reveal his heart, and they may not be exactly pure. So Jesus addresses this in verse 29. And he says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I know you left all that stuff. I know all you guys left all that stuff. I know you guys probably made a bunch of these decisions to leave all that stuff without talking to your family. I know, and, and you, you probably were ridiculed, and people were angry. They didn't have a good wife like me or good in-laws like me who would have been supportive of whatever the Lord would lay on them. He, 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 but he's saying, I know, Peter, all that stuff. I know it, but that's not the issue, Peter. He says it's not about trying to be first, trying to get ahead of that guy in line into heaven. That's not what it's about, Peter. He says it's about you and your relationship with the Lord. He says, in this, in this life, in this world, the world considers uh, some things to be more honorable than others. They put you higher on the list in cultural understandings if you have money. Jesus says, that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. The world thinks you're first if you do this and this and this and this, and you've got all your ducks in a row and everything's great, but you're gonna, they're going to be last in the kingdom of heaven. Those who have followed me, that the world considers to be last, they will be first in the kingdom of heaven. Again, that doesn't mean money's bad. People who have money can still use it for God's glory, absolutely. And I know many who do. But Jesus is saying it's the pursuit that matters. Are you pursuing this thing or pursuing the Lord? Are you pursuing the thing that the, that the world says you've got to be pursuing? You've got to hustle and hustle and hustle and get that thing. You've you, you got to be looking out for number one. You've got to go and you've got to get it. He says, well, if that's what you're pursuing, then you're last in the kingdom. 
And those who are first in the kingdom are pursuing me at the expense of all that. But along the way, as Jesus has says there, had said there, if you've, we who have left everything have followed you. And Jesus said, there is no one who has left all that stuff for my sake who will not receive a hundredfold. You see, being a follower of the Lord is costly. Tony Evans said, you cannot grow as a disciple without paying a price. You can't grow if you're not paying a price. If it's easy, then there's no growth. If there's no problems, there's no growth. If it's comfortable, then there's no growth. There needs to be growth so it will be difficult. There, it is costly in all kinds of ways. See, this man, this rich man Jesus was addressing, this man wanted the best of both worlds, this world and the next. He wanted the best of this world, and he wanted to pursue everything that he wanted here, and he wanted eternal life. And Jesus said, no, you've got to have one or the other. You can't have both. You can't have both. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to love one and hate the other, or hate one and love the other. This man loved his money more than he loved the opportunity of following Jesus and getting into heaven. So he, Jesus was telling his disciples, Jesus was telling that man, it is costly. You must sacrifice because it all comes down to what you value. Followers of Jesus are to value what he values above all else. And value is proven and not stated. It's proven through sacrifice. It's proven through investment in both money and time and uh, 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 focus and attention. You must sacrifice and spend then what you sacrifice in, in order to invest it in the Lord and what he would have you invested in. You must sacrifice, give up some things. Because what you sacrifice and where you invest it prove what you value. What you sacrifice and where you invest prove what you value. If you were to examine, say, your schedule over the last week, how much time did you sacrifice for the Lord? Or where did you invest your time this week? That will prove what you value. Same way with money. What did you, how much did you sacrifice? Where did you invest it? That proves what you value. Proves it. What about your job? Conversations. Topics. Are there any that you sacrificed in order to invest it in something of a higher calling? It proves what you value. Some of us are willing to have conversations that are gossipy, or less than honorable in order to keep what we perceive to be a high estimation in someone else's mind, to keep their opinion of us higher. We would rather discuss something that is dishonorable, that is gossip, than honestly get down to the truth of the matter, than care about that person's soul. Jesus spoke to this rich man 
with love. I mean, he said that he looked at the man and he loved him. But he told him the truth. He says, man, you love that thing more than you love eternal life. And if you want it, you got to give it up. If you really want eternal life, that means giving up the thing that you, that you love more than eternal life. That means giving up the thing you love more than, more than Jesus. I've told the story before, but there was this guy, a preacher. He's doing, he did mission work for a while. He left his church. He did mission work for a while, and now he's doing some other things. He's ministering in China. Man, and Francis Chan. But he, he had this church out in California. He's a massive Lakers fan. We'll forgive him. But he was watching the Lakers game one night when one of his daughters came in. I said, I'm ready for bed. Will you come read me a story? Tuck me in? He says, I will. It's almost halftime. I'll be there just a second. Daughter left the room. He could notice out of the corner of his eyes she was a little dejected. He was convicted the second she turned the corner. Turned the TV off, went in there, read her a story. He said, I came back in that room. He said, I immediately called the cable company, canceled my cable. He says, I know we, we, I, we had this entertainment, it's what we did, and it was good. It wasn't necessarily bad in of itself, but he said, in me, I had to remove the temptation. I had to just completely remove it. Because he said, in that moment, I made a decision to value watching the Lakers over valuing my child. So he cut it out. He said, I'm just, it's gone. I would rather not have it and be able to invest in my child who I've only got for a certain amount of time than have it and neglect what God has given me. So he cut it out. He sacrificed it so that he could invest in something longer lasting. What you sacrifice and where you invest prove what you value. You know, over the last week and a half, I have gotten a lot of texts and calls and questions and comments about revival. What is revival? What does it look like? How do we get it? Why won't God give it? And a lot of times we pray for revival, asking God to, to give, it, re, give us revival, like Psalm 85, revive, why aren't you reviving us? As though we are the ones who are always ready, and he's holding back. In truth, it's the opposite. He's always ready. And we end up being like this rich man, we're holding back. A lot of times. You know, because when it comes to revival, there are some things that are always there. Study every revival in history. There's some things that are always there. Never fails. Sacrifice, what we're talking about today. What you sacrifice, where you invest, shows what you value, proves what you value. Sacrifice is there. Giving is there every time. And you know, there's two more. You know what they are? Prayer, always. Prayer leading up, prayer all during. And the last one, evangelism. People telling other people about Jesus. It's like, it's something within them. They, they, they can't contain it. They've got to give it to other people. You've got to come, man. You've got to know Jesus. And they just cannot uh, hold it in any longer. That's what revival is demonstrated in, in our action. It's proved by what we value. If we're 
sacrificing, if we're praying with, with urgency and desperation, if we're telling people about Jesus, it cannot be contained. It can't. Over the last, I don't even know how long now, our youth have been going through a revival. How do I know? They've been sacrificing their time. How do I know? People have been coming and getting saved. Like every other Wednesday, Jared comes in. This kid got saved. Sends me a text. This kid got saved. Three kids got saved tonight. Youth are having a revival. How many of these candles have we added in these last couple months because those kids are getting saved? This church has gone through revival at different points in our history. Most recently, I remember when I wrote my dissertation and I was, I was given the defense of it to these guys and, I, and we got way off topic from what I wrote and we were talking about just the church and its history. The revival that broke out in the 90s. Revival in, what year was that? Uh, 2016? February 2016. When we had uh, like 60-something people saved in the course of three days. And then... October 2021, was it 2021? 2020. It's 2020 because I had COVID at the beginning of it. That's how I remember. And uh, it was October 2020. And how I remember, isn't that right, Katie? Was it 2021? Okay, she, she's better at this than me. Uh, October 2021. We got COVID right at the beginning of October. It's like October 1 or something. And, and so that was like a Friday, Sunday, what we're going to do, I can't come in and preach. It's, uh, and so what we did, I was texting everybody, calling people. I remember I, I texted Brandon Lindley to help me out with that. And uh, we had a prayer service. What, what, what necessary for revival? Prayer. You know what happened? Over the course of those next 31 days, 72 people got saved. Y yeah. 31 days, 72 people got saved <laughs> in this building. Not telling how many got saved out of this building. You don't have to be in this building to get saved. There's nothing holy about green pews with wax spilled on them from the Christmas Eve candle service that you can't get out because we've tried and it's there for good. <laughs> it's a sign of God's provision. Uh, that's where it started prayer, went through people telling people about Jesus. Somebody asked me in this last week and a half, how do we get what they got up there at Asbury University? Those people, you know, going and they're having that, that, that praise service and you know what they're doing? They're sacrificing, they're praying, and people are getting saved. Constantly. So this, this person said to me, I'm praying that what they got, we get it here. And I said, that's, that's not what I'm praying. I'm praying that God can do in the queen what he can't do there. I'm praying God gives us something he can't do there. Revival springs out of a dedicated, intentional pursuit of the Lord. When a group of people Follow after him wholeheartedly. In the 1800s, Dwight L. Moody, before he was this big name, came across this guy in England who, who told him that the world has yet to see one heart completely sold out for the Lord. 
D.L. Moody wrote in his uh, journals, he said, I have made a commitment to be that man. What would it look like for an entire church to be completely sold out for the Lord? Who, who sacrifice, who pray, who tell people about Jesus. We're talking not just altars filled. We're talking not just a week and a half praise service. We're talking just outbreak. <laughs> we're talking peace. We're talking healed marriages. We're talking, uh, we won't have a drug problem, right, Lynette? Because we'll have a Jesus thing. It starts with Jesus. Are you pursuing Jesus? Not looking at other people and saying, man, they need to pursue Jesus. Man, we'd be on this if they would get behind their mask and they would get on Jesus. You can't control them. You can control you. You get on Jesus and see what happens next. You start the process sacrificing. You start the process praying. You start the process telling people about Jesus. And everything's going to be changed. Everything's going to be changed. One of my kids inviting his soccer coach twice a week for months. Saw his soccer coach and his whole family show up. Convicting to me, the preacher. I guess I need to be doing that. I didn't invite the guy. My kid did. How are you going to look at your life from here on out? What, what does the Lord need for you to sacrifice, to give up, like this man in, in Jesus' encounter? What is standing between you and absolute devotion to the Lord? Is it money? Is it status? Is it the opinions of other people that you're valuing above, valuing the opinion of the Lord? Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it making sure your kid is in every possible extracurricular activity in the world, never mind investing in their spiritual development? What is in between you and God? And what does Jesus tell this man? Get rid of it. Carve it out. Because sometimes what we need is a complete recalibration. We've got to cut it off. We can be, 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 be built back up later on. we got to cut it off and allow the Lord to build us up, put our trust and our faith in him, and we'll see something unique. We'll see something completely different. You see, Jesus taught this to the man, but he taught it to his disciples because he knew these disciples are going to be the guys who are going to be in charge of this whole deal when I'm gone. They've got to understand you got to pursue Jesus. you got to pursue what the Spirit lays on you. you got to follow where God takes you. And to do that, it means you got to give up some stuff. you got to sacrifice. That means you got to be in tune with the Lord. That means you got to communicate with him through prayer. And that means you got to tell people about how great God is to you. you got to plug it in. Say, I'm going all in with Jesus. And see where this takes me. I was talking to Jared this morning about experimenting with things in your life to try to figure some stuff out. Why don't you just experiment a little bit with Jesus? Say, okay, I'll do this thing. I'll sacrifice that thing. I'll, I'll, I'll start praying more intentionally, investing in it, and I'll start telling people about Jesus. Just try those three things over the next little bit. 
next seven days. Maybe the thing Jesus spoke to your heart when I was talking here just a second ago, thing you need to sacrifice is social media because it's really screwing with your head. Doing it for the likes, doing it for the, 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 the shot of adrenaline it gives you. Maybe you need to give that up for a little bit. Sacrifice. Maybe you need to pray a little more. Maybe you need to tell people, but just try it and see what happens. Try Jesus and see what happens. What's the worst that could happen? If one of your friends or family members comes to know Jesus, that's pretty good. Let's try it together. Let's try it together. And this world will be different. Our community will be different. Absolutely from the beginning, right here, right now, lying in the sand. This is, the, this is where it starts. Will you do it? Sacrifice. Will you pray? Will you tell people about Jesus? Everything will change. Everything will change. Maybe today, it's not just something you need to sacrifice. It's your life that you need to sacrifice. As a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12. And you need to come and believe in Jesus. Believe that he is God's son. Died so all your sins would be forgiven and rose so you can live after you die. Maybe that's what you need to do today. That's the decision you need to make today is believe in Jesus. And see what he can do in a life that is dedicated, that is following after him. Will you believe today? Will you believe in Jesus today? Come to Jesus today. Maybe you need to come down here in just a second. We're going to pray. Music team will come. And you need to come down here to these steps. And you need to offer to Jesus hands up, palms facing up, and say, Jesus, I'm sacrificing that thing that you put in my heart. I'm sacrificing that thing. I'm giving it up for you, for your name, for your glory, for your sake. But I need your help, Jesus. I need, I need your strength and perseverance, Jesus, because I can't do it on my own. And Jesus said right there in that passage, no, you can't. <laughs> it's impossible by yourself. But all things are possible with God. Will you come and pray and give it up? Come and pray for your family. Come and pray for your friends that need to hear about Jesus. Come and pray for God's revival to fall down onto Queen because he is, he is going to be moving with his spirit through you to accomplish this thing. Say, God, make me willing. God, make me an instrument. God, make me usable for you to do whatever you would have me do. So whether you need to come and believe in Jesus or you need to come and pray for yourself, your family, your friends, come, no matter what.